are celebrating, we're remembering this advent of Jesus, this coming of Jesus. Well, what we're also remembering, or also um, having kindled up in us, if we're believers, is not just Jesus' first coming, his first advent, but also his second coming, the second advent. In some ways, you can say it this way. We're not just remembering this first Christmas um, uh, morning, uh, the night when Jesus is born. We're also um, looking forward to a great expectation, the second Christmas to come, the second coming of Jesus. And so, with that in mind, we're wanting to, you know, remind ourselves. We're wanting to, uh, to, to go back over as, as part of our faith, as, as part of that which has been handed down to us through the centuries. And is um, born out of God's Word. And that is what we believe about who Jesus is. And so, one of the great um, um, passages on um, who Jesus is. Paul writes to the Colossians, and he writes to the Colossians because they had some, um, some folks in their midst that were teaching um, things that were false about Jesus, and they were false about Jesus in the first century, and they're false about Jesus in the 21st century. And so Paul is going to write to make clear that we know who Jesus is. I began uh, Bryant Gumbel several years ago. It's a famous interview, and he interviews Larry King. And, uh, you know, so Larry King, the host from CNN. And Larry King's a fascinating guy, and he, um, while there's no evidence that Larry King was ever a believer, um, he was fascinated with religious leaders, had Billy Graham on often, and, and, and lots of, Ravi Zacharias, lots of um, um, Christian leaders in the world, and would always probe them with this great curiosity of one that, um, that wanted to believe, and maybe wanted to know more, wanted to know why they believed, but in his mind, never could come to what he felt was a satisfaction. So Bryant Gumbel um, is asking him about this, sort of his fascination with people that are Christian leaders. And he says, um, so he asks him, he says, hey, if you could ask God one question, Larry, what would it be? And he doesn't skip a beat. And he says, well, I would ask him if he had a son. And it's very interesting. I mean, it's a great question. And the answer that Paul gives us this morning is, yes, he does have a son. And his name is Jesus. John Blanchard, a sociologist, estimated that there, uh, of all this, the people that have ever lived since the dawn of civilization, probably somewhere around 60 billion that have walked planet Earth. And he goes on to argue that of those 60 billion, um, only a handful can you point to throughout the history of Earth that, that have made significant sort of Planet scope changes. And of the handful of people, there's only one that stands head and shoulders above all the others, and that's Jesus. Listen to this. Every recorded word that he said has been sifted, analyzed, studied, scrutinized, debated. Every word. More than all the historians, philosophers, and scientists put together. 
and he was here 2,000 years ago. And after 2,000 years, listen, there is not a minute that goes by on this planet that there are not millions of people studying what it is that he said. I mean, think about this. Think about it. Jesus of Nazareth in Israel, a, a, a man who should not be known by the world, coming from a place that nowhere in the midst of at the time would have been obscurity. And yet, we divide history by this man. There is B.C. and A.D. And what divides history is this man's birth. He never wrote a book that would know of. And yet, library after library after library, times a million libraries across the world, are filled with volumes written about who this man is. He never painted a picture, so far as we know. And yet the world's greatest art and greatest drama and greatest music and greatest literature has Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, as its source. He never raised an army, so far as we know. Yet millions have died for him. He never traveled probably further than a hundred miles from where he was born. And yet the testimony, the word of who he is has gone all over the world. He only had a handful of followers with him in his ministry, in his earthly ministry. And yet, over 30% of the world today names the name of Jesus as their Lord. His ministry was only three short years, his public ministry. And yet, 2,000 years later, the earth is filled this morning with songs being sung, praising his name. He had no formal education, didn't attend a university or a seminary. He had thousands upon thousands of universities and seminaries and places of higher education are named for him. To explain Jesus fully is impossible. But to ignore Jesus is disastrous. And to reject him is fatal. Listen, human speech, language that comes out of our mind, it's too limited to describe all that he is. Our minds, they, they, we can't fully comprehend all that he is. And our hearts, we don't have the capacity to embrace all that he is. And yet... When we talk about Jesus, we're talking about the eternal Son of the eternal God who stepped out of eternity into history and took on humanity so that we could know Him. So who is Jesus? Well, I want to look at what Paul says. I'm going to begin in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. I'm going to read to verse 20. It's probably, most scholars think, this section from 15 to 20 probably is a hymn, probably a hymn that the early church sung when they gathered together. 
Maybe you could think about it as like the first Christmas carol of the, of the church. And there's two stanzas, two parts of it. That Jesus is the, the author of all creation. The one who makes the invisible God visible. And he is the author of the new creation. The redemption of all of the earth. So listen to these words, and then we'll go back through and look at them, and then we'll, we'll close out. Here's what Paul writes to the Colossians, chapter 1, verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and And on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Would you bow with me? Father, I pray your word would be clear and that it would not return Void this morning, but that it would accomplish what you have sent it for. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, look at this. He's the physical revelation of the invisible God. It says the, he's the image of the invisible God. Image is the, the Greek word, literally, it's icon. It's a word we get icon from. It's a, it's a likeness. It is a, Christ, uh, one writer says, Christ has always been, is, and always will be the image of God. So the incarnation, him taking on flesh, it didn't make him the image of God, but it did bring him in that image... Within our grasp, so that we could know him. So when Paul says that Jesus is the image or the icon, here's what he's saying. That Jesus is equally God. This is what he means. He, if he, it, It's the portrait of God, but, but the word icon is, captures the idea. It means, it means all the person's character, all the person's attributes. Everything that that one is, they are. That's what he means. And to say that he's the image of God is to say that he is God. He reveals God's character because he's God. One old preacher said this. He said, imagine Jesus going into the temple and having a conversation with the teachers when he's a 12-year-old boy. This is one of the learned doctors there strokes his beard and says, Son, how old are you? Well, on my mother's side, I'm 12 years old. 
but on my father's side, I'm older than my mother and as old as my father. You see, he was both God and man. Now, on his mother's side, he got thirsty. On his father's side, he said, I am the water of life. On his mother's side, he got hungry. On his father's side, he can take the lunch of a schoolboy and feed 5,000. On his mother's side, he was homeless and didn't have a place to lay his head. On his father's side, he owned the cattle on a thousand hills. On his mother's side, he wept at the grave of Lazarus. On his father's side, he says, Lazarus, come forth. And raises him from the dead. He was God in human flesh. That's what it means that he was the image. Now, when we talk about this, here's the deal. We are in the deep water of the doctrine of the incarnation. That's what we're talking about. That, that, that God is, is, um, is made flesh, that, that Jesus is God come into human history, come into the, the one who is the creator, becomes part of the creation. It's not saying that a human being became God. That's not what it's teaching. It's the first that's the first lie that, that was told Adam and Eve, that you know you somehow can become God. It's not that someone became God. It is that God became someone. God became man. John Calvin, he uses, as he talks about the incarnation, he uses this great word. He calls it accommodation. And you see it all the time. You, you see accommodation happen when, you know, you're walking through the, the busy store and you've got a mom and she's got a couple of young kids, you know, one on each hand, and, and she's slowed her pace to accommodate for the children. It, it's... It's what it means when God comes and becomes man. It's like a parent that, that gets down on the floor and, 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 and down low where he can be face to face and eye to eye with the child and speaks in a way in which comforts the child and doesn't frighten him and speaks in language in which the child would understand and not be confused. That's what it means. You know, the confusion or the errors come when you say Jesus is only God or He's only man. And the church, they, they wrestled with this to find just the right language. You know, they pressed the language as hard as they could to make sure that they were accurately articulating what it is that the New Testament put forward about who Jesus is. And not just the New Testament, but what the Old Testament looked forward to as well. And those that strayed to the, to the right or to the left, it wasn't that we had councils that invented doctrine. We had councils that appeared because people of influence were saying things that were different than what the New Testament was teaching. So they come together in a council and they articulate what it is the church has always believed. And one of those, as we talk about the Incarnation, is this idea that he, Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And it is this big theological word. You can write it down if you want. You can use it at, at Christmas time, you know, show, show your um, siblings how smart you are. Hypostatic union. That in Jesus, you have both fully God and fully man. 
And neither is diminished by the other. Two natures in one person. I remember, I probably told you this, we were, we were, um, I was in seminary and I was taking a course on the Trinity. It was called Trinitarianism. And um, I was in the throes of it. It was my second year of, of seminary. And, um, but it was Sunday morning and we were driving to church. And uh, my daughter Maggie um, at the time uh, was three years old, probably about to be four years old. And I remember we're on the way to church. She's in the car seat in the back. And I hear this, you know, sweet little, and she's always been super smart. I mean, you know, she's a lot like her mom. And so I hear this voice, and, and, and she's saying, you know, she's sort of thinking about these things. You know, um, um, so so how, can, how, can, how can God be God and Jesus be God? I was so, I was so excited, I almost wrecked the car. I'm like, oh! Oh, that's a great question. I can answer this. I said, okay, Maggie, it's called a hypostatic union. <laughs> Leslie reaches over and puts her hand on my knee, and she's like, you know what? I think I'll, I think I'll take this one. It's hard. It's a mystery. It's one we'll never fully understand, but we want to make sure we don't get wrong. Fully God, fully man, all of his deity, all of his divinity, fully retained, fully possessed, all that he was as the eternal son of the eternal God, the second person of the Godhead. And yet what it also means is that he did not fully express all that he was in his deity when he comes and takes on humanity. Fully possessed, not fully sure. Let me give you an illustration. So imagine this. You have a kingdom and it's ruled by a very powerful and strong and wealthy king. And that king, he has every privilege that you can imagine and everything that money can buy and the, 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 the finest of foods and the, and, the, and the most beautiful clothes and the best education and most skilled doctors and an impenetrable army and a loyal royal guard. And one day he's on a journey through his kingdom and he comes to a place that he'd never seen before. It is a place of stark poverty. It is a slum in the midst of his kingdom. And there reside the poor who have been relegated to nothing but begging. And so as he travels back to the palace and settles in for the evening, he cannot get those poor beggars out of his mind. And wonders what in the world it is that he could do for them. And he decides that the first place to start is to find out what kind of a life that is. And so what he decides is that he's going to move out of the palace and into this impoverished street in the city. And so he exchanges his clothes for these smelly, tattered clothes of a beggar. And he, he comes in and he adopts this lifestyle of a beggar. He takes on all of the poverty that they have. But he's the king. And in the midst of that, when he's hungry, he could have called for royal chefs. They would have been there in a moment. But in order to live the life of a beggar, he instead learns what hunger is like. What it is to have to beg for food. 
When he gets sick, he could call a doctor, yet he decides to grow ill and learns suffering. He learns want. Learns what it is to be humiliated and insulted and mistreated. Could have had the royal guard at his command defend him. But chooses to endure what he had never experienced. The qualities of his kingship are fully retained. Now by this king become beggar. Did the expression, the, the manifestation of all the rights and privileges, though, he, he decides he doesn't take advantage of that. They don't go away. They are not diminished. He chooses not to take advantage of that to live as a beggar, even though he is the king. But subjects himself, becomes one of them. Possessing all without limitation, without anything diminished, yet expresses none of it. This is the incarnation. The reality is this. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what God's like, we have to look at Jesus. See, when you see Jesus, you see the invisible God. Exodus 33 says, listen, God declares no man can look at Him and live. John says in the Gospel that no one had ever seen God, but Jesus has made the invisible God known. Hebrews 1.3 says Jesus is the exact imprint of God. He shows us who God is. Jesus, in John chapter 14, verse 9, says, Whoever whoever seen me has seen the Father. story of a little boy he's drawing a picture one day and his mom comes by and says you know what are you coloring and he replies well i'm i'm drawing a picture of god and so the mom not wanting to you know rain too much on this parade and you know of his aspirations just gently reminds him he says well you know johnny nobody really knows what god looks like to which he says well they will after i'm done We didn't know what God looked like. But we do now. After Jesus has come and taken on flesh. Through Christ the Word, God became audible. Through Christ the light, God became visible. Through Christ the life, God became tangible. Through Christ the Son, God became knowable. Listen, we, we can't ascend to His height, so God, through His Son, descends to our humanity. Jesus is God come near. Emmanuel is what the angel announces. God with us. Well, he goes on. He's the firstborn of all creation, which doesn't mean he's the firstborn chronologically or he's the firstborn historically. If Paul wanted to say that, there's a word he could use. It's not the word he uses. This word firstborn, it means first in rank, first in supremacy. Um, The one who has the most supreme place. He outranks 
everyone. There have been, however, for 20 centuries, heresies related to this. The Mormons, the Jehovah's Witness, they do not believe that Jesus is God. Or they would say, affirm, say, well, he's God's highest creation. So God wants to create everything, so he creates Jesus, and then he uses Jesus, and, and through Jesus he creates everything. And yet, that is heresy. That is not what the Bible teaches. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. In the third century, you had a guy named Arius, and he taught that Jesus did not uh, exist, coexist eternally with the Father. And he used this verse and some others. He taught Jesus was highly exalted and worthy to be honored. But he was merely just the first and the greatest of creation, not being God himself. He's declared a heretic by the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. Before that, you had a Gnostic, maybe, maybe one who would have been responsible or his teachers responsible for some of the nonsense going on in Colossae that Paul is addressing. The, the Gnostic is a man named Serenthus, probably born in Egypt, raised as a Jew, became a leader of a group of Christians that, that called themselves Christians. They were actually Gnostics. He taught Jesus was an ordinary man upon whom the Christ descended. And then, at Jesus' death, just before he dies, the Christ leaves him. It is, it is the idea of a man became God, not God becoming man. Well, there's a story the church father Eusebius tells um, that's a quote from Arrhenius that he got it from Polycarp. Polycarp is a disciple of John. It's actually super reliable um, uh, eyewitness history passed to Eusebius, the church historian. And the story goes that John, uh, he's in Ephesus at the time, Serenthus comes to Ephesus. They are in the same bathhouse there in Ephesus. John gets when Serenthus is there, and he um, ups and runs out. And John would have been old by then. Runs out of the bathhouse, yelling at the top of his lungs, this building will collapse because the enemy of truth is inside. In fact, some scholars, a lot of scholars, believe that some of the things John specifically writes, he's addressing against Serenthus. Well, Paul says he's the image of the invisible God. I want you to see he's also the creator and the sustainer of everything. Look at 16 and 17 again. For by him all things are created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. And for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the author of creation, he himself is not created. When we look up into the night sky, when we examine his creation, that we behold the wonder and, and the glory of what it is that Jesus created. We worship Him. We honor Him all the more. Consider a moment. This is, this is all, you can look this up at NASA and Wikipedia and a couple of other nerdy websites. Just listen to this. 
This is fascinating. Comets. Do you like this? That's preacher for comet. Johnny Russell, I love you. All right, they have trails. So the comet has a trail up to 10,000 miles long. If you captured all the vapor of that trail, you put it in a bottle, the amount of vapor actually present in the bottle would take up less than one cubic inch of space. Here's another wonder for you. Get this. I'm standing, you're sitting on a planet that's moving. It is revolving at 900 miles an hour right now. It's orbiting at 19 miles a second. It's orbiting a sun 19 miles a second that is the source of all of its power. Now, the sun that you and me and all the stars that we see, we're part of this galaxy. We are moving at a million miles a day in an outer spiral arm at 40,000 miles an hour. It's the Milky Way. So you don't feel like you're moving. You feel like you're sitting still. Our galaxy contains 100 billion stars. It's 100,000 light years from side to side. 30,000 light years from the galactic center point. We go around every 200 million years. Our galaxy is one of millions of billions in this amazing and expanding universe. He holds all things together. Creation is not chaos because he holds all things together. Here's another one. Consider this. A single human chromosome contains what is recorded 20 billion bits of information. If you were to put that in ordinary books in ordinary language, it would take 4,000 volumes. One Greek scholar, A.T. Robinson. All things were created has the idea, he says, of stand created or remain created. The permanence of the universe rests then on Christ far more than it rests on gravity. It is a Christ-centric universe. This is what Paul's saying to us. This God who became flesh and dwelt among us holds all things together. Now I want you to see, not only is he the author of creation, he's the author of a new creation. 18 and 20. Look real quick. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Here's what's fascinating. The first part of this hymn, these first few verses of the hymn, they've been showing us sort of the hand of God, the, uh, the majesty of God, the, the glory of God, what God does through His Son, almost without effort. In the second part of the hymn, I think it shows us the compassion of God, the, the heart of God, who He is and 
and what he loves. The creation of the world cost him nothing. The redemption of the world we see, the salvation of the world, the reconciliation of those who are rebellious and lost and broken and sinful. That let there be light and life is born in us. That cost him the blood of his son. All the creative power in the first part of this is present in the second part. Paul's saying, look, the one who made everything, who made it all, who it belongs to, who holds it all together, the very reason for your existence, stepped out of eternity into history to hang on a cross and die naked for you. That the one who made every seed and limb and tree dies on a tree. The one who made the oceans and every spring cries out, I thirst. And other people have died. Other people have died noble deaths. But the fact that he's God makes his death meaningful. The fact that this baby in a manger is no ordinary baby, but the fact that this baby that we come to peer into is, is, is the very God himself. His death makes his deity knowable. When God created the universe, He did it with a word. He said, let there be light, and there was, there was light. But when God saves us, that word, John tells us, became flesh. And that word was in the beginning and with God and was God. And that word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so when God saved us, He did it with His word. And it took every drop of his blood. He didn't have to do it. But he did it because he loved us. Yes, Larry King, God has a son. His name's Jesus. Notice that it was what God was pleased to do. Pleased to have the fullness of uh, of, of God dwell in Jesus so that we could be reconciled through Him. Salvation. God bringing you a sinner who you may be sitting here this morning basking in the shame and the guilt of your life. You may even have an enemy that helps you entertain thoughts that, you know what, God could never save one like me. My sin is so great. He could never forgive me. To which I would say, you're not that powerful. Your sin is not that great. His grace is greater. That's why we sing at Christmas. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow. 
far as the curse is found. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God revealed in the pages of the Word of God. He's the one that took my sin. He's the one that took your sin to the cross. Paul says he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God so that there would be peace and that peace comes by the shedding of his blood. And on his cross, what he does is that God grasped the hand of man and man grasps the hand of God and brings us into reconciliation. He brings us to peace. That's why Paul can say in Romans 5 about believers, therefore, you have peace with God. Not only are you loved, but your way of forgiveness has been made. Not only are you loved, but the one who loves you and created you, condescended himself, accommodated himself in a way that now what was unknowable before can be knowable. What was unimaginable is visible. What was intangible can be received. Let me ask you this morning, have you received him? Have you trusted him? Have you received the love of God given by His Son who left the palace and came to the slum so that we would know Him. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, I pray that You would do it on Your behalf.